Good morning, and you may be seated, and welcome to Loudonville Community Church. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, John tells us that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth has come to us through Jesus Christ. And as we have just sung, grace upon grace upon grace. Well, it is November 12th of 2023, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said, amen. And believe that and confess that by faith every single day, no matter what you are going through, no matter what you're experiencing, do know that God is enthroned in heaven, and he rules over all. I do hope you're doing well, and if you're here for the first time this morning, we want to extend a warm welcome to you, to Loudonville Community Church. Thanks so much for for really choosing to begin your Lord's Day in worship with us. And as we open God's Word this morning to Romans chapter 10, I also want to express my appreciation and really the appreciation of all of us here to those of you who came together on Friday morning for the assembling of those Thanksgiving boxes. It is a well oiled machine. And uh, it was great to see families and kids and young people and adults all serving together to make those baskets possible. It is, as we have said, our goal to send out 500 baskets to families in needs in our community. Thanks again for your willingness to participate and share financially in that offering and outreach this Thanksgiving season. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we prepare now to open your word, We are grateful, as always, that what we will hear in it, we will hear nowhere else. For, Father, when you speak, you speak with with clarity. You speak truth. But also, Father, you speak uniquely. Because your voice rises above all other voices. Your word is exalted above all other words. And so now, Father, in all that we will hear from you today, I pray that you will stand in my body and think with my mind and speak through my mouth all the things you would have us hear and say and feel and do. To the glory of Christ we ask. Amen. On November 7th, 1938, Herschel Grinspan, a 17-year-old Polish-German Jew, marched into the German embassy in Paris and shot a diplomat by the name of Ernst von Rath five times. In revenge for the thousands of Jewish refugees, including members of his own family who had been expelled from Germany by the Nazi regime and then were trapped in horrible conditions at the Polish border. Adolf Hitler used the assassination as propaganda in order to provoke anti-Semitic fervor, resulting in the infamous Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, and igniting nationwide, nationwide riots that took place over two days on November 9th and 10th, 85 years ago this past week. You know, when I think of 1938 as being ancient history, I remind myself that my mother was born 
after or was born before that, and she is still living. So that history is much closer than we think. During the riots, the Nazis set hundreds of synagogues on fire. They vandalized thousands of Jewish-owned businesses and desecrated Jewish cemeteries. They broke into homes, smashed furniture, and terrorized Jewish families. And following orders given by the Nazi leadership, policemen provided no protection, nor did the firemen extinguish any fires. And all, 91 Jews were killed, but... 30,000 Jewish men were sent to concentration camps. One week later at his presidential news conference on November 15, 1938, President Roosevelt denounced Nazi Germany's terror attack on the Jews, saying, and I quote, I myself could scarcely believe that such things could occur in a 20th century civilization. Today, Holocaust survivors are bearing witness that what happened in southern Israel on October 7th of this year reminds them of what they experienced in their childhood in November 1938. And it does make me wonder what FDR would say if he were still alive today. Our world has changed. I think our world has changed significantly since the attacks by Hamas on Israel on October 7th. And since October 7th, things will never again be the same. Now, there is a hopeful trend moving through the Arab world away from the kind of deadly form of radical Islamism embodied by Hamas. Many Palestinians in the Gaza Strip just want a decent life. They hate Hamas, and they hate what Hamas has done to their people. But there is also a great number of people who support Hamas, who have been indoctrinating their own children from a young age to become martyrs and to kill Jews. And if things are going to improve for the Palestinians, and I pray that they do, I'm afraid that the progress will be very, very slow. Many of us, however, are troubled especially by the revival of anti-Semitism in the world today. Tens of thousands of anti-Semitic incidences have have been reported in recent weeks from that lynch mob tearing through an airport in Russia searching for Jews to kill, to the student at Cornell posting online a message to slit the throats of all Jews, to Chinese companies even erasing Israel from the map of the world. Apparently, anti-Semitism has, not only, has only been slumbering, but now it has awakened with a vengeance. Anti-Semitism has been called history's oldest hatred. And certainly extremists in different contexts often draw upon the hatred of the Jews for their perverse views. But it seems like, as Jeffrey Goldberg, writing in the Atlantic Monthly, has said, such bigotry is becoming normalized as the barbarous events of World War II now recede from collective memory. But why? Why is anti-Semitism so pervasive? And why is it so persistently viral? In the book of Genesis, we read about the rivalry that existed between Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, 
who were sisters. A word to the wise, it's not a good idea to marry sisters. But Jacob was tricked into doing so by Laban, his father-in-law. But after, after the marriage, in that marriage night, Leah was already winning the childbearing competition with her sister when she gave birth to her fourth son, whom she named Judah. And the name of Judah is the only name in the Hebrew language that assimilates God's ineffable name and what is called the Tetragrammaton. That is the name of God in four letters in its spelling. God's name is Yahweh. Judah's name is Yehoda. Very similar with exactly the same consonants. So that from Jacob's son Judah, who continued the branch of the messianic line, out of that name comes the word Jew itself. What's the point? The point is that the Jewish people have the imprint of God's name in their genes. So that anti-Semitism at its root is a rejection of God. And the world hates the Jew because the world hates God. This month, we're maneuvering our way through Romans chapters 9 through 11, and the central issue in these three chapters becomes the Jewish people. And it is primarily the problem of Jewish unbelief. How is it that the chosen people of God, who bear the name of God in their very own name, have rejected God's beloved Son? John chapter 1 verse 9 states the problem rather concisely. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why have the majority of Jews rejected their promised Messiah? Romans chapter 9 through 11 gives the answer. And the answer is that it is all a part of God's plan. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 9 as we sought to answer the question whether or not God's word has failed since most Jews have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And the answer, as argued by the Apostle Paul in the ninth chapter, is that God's word would have failed if God had promised to save every single physical descendant of Abraham. But since God never promised to save every ethnic Israelite, but only a remnant within elect Israel, based on his sovereign mercy, God's word has not failed. Romans chapter 9 verse 6 says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now one of the things we understand from Romans chapter 9 is that even today, God is still calling out from among ethnic Israel, a remnant known as elect Israel, who are the true descendants, the true spiritual descendants of Abraham. Now, the primary concern in these chapters, and hear me clearly on this, is is not about the modern state of Israel, or whether or not the government in Israel always gets everything right. It does not. Nor is it even about Christian Zionism, the argument of the 19th and 20th century that led to the establishment of the Jewish people in what is called their biblical homeland. And therefore, it does not answer the question as much as we would like for it to answer the question, who owns the land today? The essential issue in these three chapters is with the spiritual fate of the Jewish people. And as we ended chapter 9 last week, we're 
reminded that a minority of Jews are being saved in the world today. God is calling out a people for himself from among the Jews, but God is also calling out a people from among the Gentiles. Next week in chapter 11, we are going to consider the future of Israel and God's plan for his people. But for today in Romans 10, sort of a break between 9 and 11, we're going to see what both Jew and Gentile need to know in order to be saved. And as we did last week, we'll sort of work our way through Romans chapter 10, section by section. And so again, I hope your Bibles are open to Romans 10, as I want to begin reading from Romans 10, the first four verses. And hear God's word, brother, is my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you're taking notes this morning, even notes in the margin of the abide, I would encourage you to write to the left side, perhaps, if you have the abide, this first point. Praying for the lost to be saved. Praying for the lost to be saved. That's exactly what Paul is doing in these opening four verses. And if the start of chapter 10 sounds familiar to you, it's because Paul began chapter 9 in a very similar way, sharing his personal anguish over the eternal fate of his human kinsmen, that is the Jewish people, his people according to the flesh. And then he opens chapter 10, revealing the desire of his heart, and then telling us that he prays for his fellow Jews to be saved. This is a powerful peak inside the inner life of the apostle. He tells us in these verses what matters most to him. This is what he wanted most out of life. He wanted his fellow Israelites to be saved. If I were to ask you to finish the sentence, my heart's desire is, however you finish that sentence, reveals the dimensions of your heart. What do you want more than anything else? I want a true spouse who knows what real love is. I want to know the true meaning and purpose in life. I want to have good health, to be in great shape. I want to be able to travel, to be respected. I want to be able to succeed in life. I want to have money and more of it. What do you most desire in life? Whatever it is, it's probably indicated, especially if you are a Christian, by what you pray for the most. I pray for my family. I pray for you. I pray for our mission partners. I pray for those who are ill. I pray for our staff. I pray for someone who does not know Christ that he or she may be saved. And I could give you a list of people that I am praying for that they would come to know Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, then Paul's heart should also characterize your heart. You are consumed. It is your heart's desire that certain people in your sphere of life and influence come to faith in Christ. So can you say, with all of my heart, I pray to God 
that my husband will come to faith in Christ, that my parents, my children, my professor, my colleague, my best friend be saved. We pray for our friends. We pray for our relatives. We pray for our neighbors to be saved. Why? Because a day of judgment is coming. And I just want you to note that the very opposite of anti-Semitism is this prayer that the Apostle Paul was praying for the Jewish people. I pray that they be saved. And we pray to God because none of us have the ability to save anyone. You know that, right? None of us have the ability to save anyone. Last week, we talked about the doctrine of election from Romans chapter 9, which says that God will have compassion on those on whom he will have compassion. So it depends on him who wills and not human will. The doctrine of election is a difficult concept for some of us because it seems to make God appear capricious or unfair. He is neither. Long ago, I stopped getting into arguments about the doctrine of election because I I know that no one is ever convinced against his own mind. And because I realized that whether we like the doctrine of election or not, what do all of us do when we want someone we love to be saved? We pray. We talk to God about that person. Why? Because deep down we know that only God can open blind eyes. We know that only God can can warm a cold heart. We know that only God can forgive all of our sins. Salvation is all the work of God. And I guess what I'm saying is that every time you pray for someone to be saved, you are actually demonstrating your belief in the doctrine of election whether you like that doctrine or not. We pray to God for sinners to be saved because God alone saves sinners. That's my hope. That's the hope of every person. Others may wonder if God is sovereign then in the salvation of sinners and has already chosen who is going to be saved, now there's a thought, then why even pray at all? If God is sovereign in his mercy, then what? then is prayer even necessary? And apparently not, because the same apostle who wrote about the doctrine of election in Christ in chapter 9 is now the same man who is on his knees praying for his kinsmen to be saved. And so if you somehow think that the doctrine of election makes prayer unnecessary, then your understanding of the doctrine of election is severely flawed. The message of the Bible is that they coexist. One does not exist without the other. So God's sovereignty, hear me, does not remove your responsibility of mind to pray and to pray persistently and to, re- and to pray with all of our hearts. That's what Paul was doing in these opening four verses. The same God who ordained who will be saved also ordained the means by which they would be saved. And God calls us to pray and to pray for those who need to be saved and to pray for them all the time. Listen to Isaiah chapter 30, verses 18 and 19, a a tremendous verse where the prophet says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. 
You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you. When? At the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. You see what the prophet is saying? Don't ever expect God to answer, apart from your prayers, that which he has only promised to give you because you prayed. Prayer is absolutely indispensable. Prayer is absolutely necessary. And God has chosen to give us the answer to which we are praying for at the sound of our cry. Who's on your heart? Who are you praying for this morning, this week? Who have you been praying for for years to be saved? Don't stop. Keep praying. What was it that was keeping the Jewish people from being saved? And therefore stirred Paul to pray with such intensity. Well, he goes on to tell us in this paragraph that it was their misguided zeal. They had a zeal for God, he said, but without knowledge. And if anybody knew what he was talking about when he discussed and described the zeal of the Jewish people, it was the Apostle Paul because he was thoroughly Jewish. He was born to a Jewish family. He was educated in the Jewish faith, taught by one of its most esteemed teachers. He became a Pharisee and was dedicated to its traditions. He had a front row seat on the values and priorities and virtues of the Jewish faith. And then he persecuted with zeal those who were claiming faith in Christ. He officiated over the death of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. And yet now in Christ, he regards all of those things for which he was once so zealous, his words, as dung. And ever since Israel's return from captivity, their zeal was undeniable. For instance, when Antiochus Epiphanes, about 150 years before the time of Christ, conquered Jerusalem and came into the city and began to stuff pork down the throats of priests and committed the abomination by sacrificing to Venus on the altar in the temple, the Jews refused to bend. From that day on, they zealously served God. They said their prayers three times a day. They crossed the seas and continents to win a single convert. They kept a tight and rigid Sabbath day. They they attended synagogue and had a special diet. They hated false teachers and false teaching. And with a passion, all of it was without zeal. Or, excuse me, with complete zeal, without knowledge. Even today, the... The Orthodox Jew, in his or her commitment, is so impressive, but it is uninformed zeal. It sort of reminds me of Yogi Berra's old statement, his famous maxim, we're lost, but we're making good time. We can have a lot of zeal, but what does it matter? Because zeal without knowledge is like an underaged driver behind the steering wheel of a car. It's so easy for a zealous person to think all is well if in the final analysis all that matters is our passion and sincerity. Zeal is a noble virtue, but it's not ultimate. Because you can be totally on zeal, for zeal, and totally zealous in all that you do, but be lost. That was the problem with the Jewish people. And Christians can be guilty of this too. There's a saying that when you you win an argument, you lose a soul. Sometimes we can be more zealous to prove someone wrong than we are to care for their soul. 
Zeal is good. But zeal without knowledge is empty. So what was this attitude that jeopardized the Jewish people? It's an important question because Israel's story is actually our story. What does Paul say? They were seeking to establish what? A righteousness of their own. That's a pretty significant line in that first paragraph. By nature, we are all determined to make it on our own. And boy, do we self-justify everything we do superbly. We fancy ourselves to be just, and then we bristle when anybody else suggests otherwise. We're predisposed to justify ourselves based on our efforts, our good deeds, whatever the moral code it is that we have embraced. We make a mental inventory of all the good that we have done, and we finish it off with an exclamation point, and then we present it to God as the very reason why He should welcome us into His presence on the day that we die. But that gets it all backwards because every attempt to establish our own righteousness will end in failure because it will never be enough. So that the Jews then, as the Jews today, and every single one of us are so intent to establish our own righteousness by doing our best, but our best will never, what, be good enough. If, if you ever pick up the game of golf... You'll discover that the golf swing involves about 24 different components from your grip to the position of your head to the placement of your feet to the rotation of your hands and so on. And the beginner complains that trying to keep all those 24 components in your head operating at the same time is near nigh impossible. But then they're told that over time and with a lot of good practice, the swing will become second nature to you. And that's how the Jews viewed their commitment to the law as the basis of their right standing before God. The way to to be right with God is to keep doing it and keep working at it until it becomes easier and easier. The only problem is if you keep relying on your performance, you'll never get there because your performance will never be good enough. But imparting righteousness is God's business. He alone can put us right. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I love that word end there. It's the word telos. You may be familiar with that word. It's used a lot of times by so many people because it means the goal and the end of something, the fulfillment or completion of something. The goal of being put right with God is completed by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because there is not a single person who can follow every single one of those laws and obey it perfectly. Most Jews cannot understand that God has established another way in the only way. They still think, and this is where they're locked in this state of unbelief, that somehow by their own performance they can be right before God. No one ever has, no one will ever be. The second thing I want you to see in our text then is that believing in a righteousness, a righteousness that comes from God, comes by faith. We go on in verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's what we were just saying. Now verse 6, 
But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know that passage, don't you? But isn't it great to see it set within its context? Set within this context of the problem of Jewish unbelief, where the Jews for centuries have been trying to establish their own righteousness. So that in verse 5, the apostle sets down the challenge, if you want to be justified in the sight of God based on your spiritual performance, then your goal will be to live by every single one of them. That is, all of them. You have to obey God perfectly in all of his parts and in all of his commandments, not just 80% and not just 90% and not just even 99.9%. That's not even close enough, but 100%. God demands perfection from your birth until your death with no failure in between. Who's made it? Not a single person. None of us have even come close. But you know, there was a time when the Apostle Paul could say, as for righteousness, get this, I was blameless. There was a time in the Apostle Paul's life when he was so deceived, he thought he was perfect. He thought he could say, hey, I am that good. I can check all the boxes until he couldn't. He describes that scenario in Romans 7. You ought to go back and read it because he says near the end of that chapter, when he came to all the commandments, he was check, check, check. He went through nine of them, thought, I'm doing pretty well until he came to the 10th. And it said, don't covet. And then he realized that in so many ways, in the dark recesses of his, of his heart, he was covetous and filled with all kinds of horrible attitudes towards others. He knew he needed to be saved because he couldn't do it. No one can. So what's the solution? In a strange passage here that we just read, Paul was quoting loosely from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. It's an interesting passage because it was the final charge of Moses to the people of Israel before they were to enter the land of promise. This is the last time that Moses would ever speak to his people. And in quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12, Moses said, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. That's the passage Paul was quoting, a passage from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And somehow, in Paul's amazing way, he sees the preaching of the gospel in that passage. You say, well, I don't even know what he is saying. What does it mean? Moses was preaching the gospel to his people before they entered the promised land. 
And in order to be righteous before a holy God, he said they don't need to climb a mountain so high in order to reach God. And they will not need to plunge down into the depths of the sea to bring God up to them. God, he says, will transform them by coming to them. His message was always the message since Genesis chapter 3, God is going to send his, his son There's going to be a seed of the woman who is going to come, and and he is going to conquer the enemy. He's coming. And Abraham looked to his coming, and Moses looked to his coming, and later on David would look to his coming, and all the prophets spoke of his coming. And the message was, he is coming, he is coming, wait for him, and when he comes, receive him. So look with anticipation, and the message is the very same message today. You don't have to go up to heaven because Jesus has already come down, and you don't have to go down because Jesus has already risen from the dead. And when you seek after the righteousness that only God has provided, then how do you handle it? How do you receive it? You receive it by faith in his word. You don't say, now I know what I'll do. I'll strive with all of my heart, with everything I possibly can, to do everything that God wants me to do in order to be saved, which is not a bad goal. The problem is you'll never be able to do it. It will never be enough. So salvation, again, is not a matter of how hard you try and how many boxes you can check off. Salvation is believing that God has already done everything that is absolutely necessary for us to be made right with him. You don't have to jump up and down. To get God's attention. You can't find that one piece that evades you to guarantee you a seat in heaven. What does Moses say? And how does then Paul quote him? The word is near you. It's right there. It's right here. And all you need to do is hear it, receive it, by believing it. It's that simple. It is that powerful and and that simple. I appreciate the way John Stott put it, storming the ramparts of heaven and potholes and Hades and search of Christ are equally unnecessary. For Christ has come and died and been raised and is therefore immediately accessible to faith. We do not need to do anything. Everything that is necessary has already been done. So the full responsibility then Let's take this back into its context. For Israel's lostness then and today, the fact that the majority of Jews do not believe is on Israel's fault. They are the ones to blame. And God turned away from Israel because Israel turned away from God. And at least five times in Romans chapter 10, the responsibility for the unbelief of the Jews is laid at the feet of the Jewish people. And you know what? Their story is our story. If you do not believe today, it is not because God has not shown you, told you what you must do to believe with all of your heart in who Jesus Christ is, that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. The problem with unbelief will always lie at the feet of the one who does not believe. What does Romans 9 or 10, 9 and 10 require to be saved? First, confession that Jesus is Lord. Can a person be a Christian without confessing Jesus Christ as Lord? The answer is simply no. Because to confess Jesus Christ as Lord is to say that he has authority over every single area of my life. Secondly, belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If salvation isn't the result of our obedience, if salvation isn't the result of us doing all of the commands of God, then 
Who does God save? The answer is clear and unmistakable. Salvation comes to anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And this is for every single person, Jew and Gentile alike. And verse 11, he quotes part of Isaiah 28, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is now a revolutionary statement. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. I love that phrase. We could spend 15 minutes probably talking about this morning. What are all of those riches that God has bestowed? And there have been many, many of them. But the greatest riches of all is that God has given himself. We get Jesus. And then he quotes Joel 2.32 in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, this has always been the answer of the, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is to call upon him. It is to say, I am broken and undone. I am a sinner in need to be saved by your grace, and God, only you can do it. I can't, and he will. So it is for everyone, and everyone is responsible. Thirdly, notice faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, because what comes next is one of the great mission texts of the Bible. Verse 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, one of the great missionary texts of our Bibles. You can't call on someone you don't believe in. You can't believe in someone you've never heard about. You can't hear without someone preaching, and you can't preach unless you go. And the beautiful feet of those who preach the gospel, and by the way, preaching isn't doing what I'm doing up here alone. It's, it's doing what you do when you're out there. The beautiful feet of those who preach the gospel are those whose feet are so calloused and whose feet are so scarred and their feet are dirty and soiled from taking the gospel into the unreached regions of the earth, going where Jesus Christ has never been heard. How beautiful are the feet of those who do that. One more thing and then I'll be done. Because Paul closes out Romans 10 with a universal offer of salvation. In light of Israel's unbelief. Here in the final section of Romans 10, it is not only God's heart or Paul's heart that is breaking. God's heart is also breaking. The Jews have heard. The Jews have been taught. And yet what? They continue to reject the truth. The majority of Jews do not believe. And their unbelief was anticipated by the prophets. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Who is he speaking of? He is speaking of the Israelites, the Jews. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. I take it that wherever the Jewish people are living in the world today, whether it's in New York City, whether it's somewhere in America, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in the Far East, whether it's in Africa or in Israel, the word of God has gone out to them. They have heard the word. And the word is near. You say, how have they heard it? Because the prophets have told them repeatedly about Jesus, about the Messiah. But the majority do not believe. 
The majority do not believe, as one Jewish woman who eventually came to faith in Christ said after she came to faith in Christ, she often prayed, Lord, let the Messiah be anybody but Jesus. She knew until she finally knew. Verse 19, but I asked, did, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, what is, and he's asking the question, what's God doing in the world today? I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Guess who that is? That's us. We are that foolish nation. The goyim, the Gentiles, those who are coming to faith in Christ. God says, I will make you jealous by their coming to faith in Christ, by them being established in a righteousness not of their own, but in a righteousness that comes from heaven. So where is all the madness in the Middle East heading? If you want to understand what's going on in that part of the world right now, and really right now as much as any time too, the Jewish people are being provoked by the salvation of the Gentiles. The Jewish people are being provoked by even the salvation of some of the Palestinians. There are Christians among the Palestinians. And even that God is using to provoke them, to bring them to a place of jealousy. Verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And then the chapter ends with this heart-wrenching visual of God standing before his people with outstretched arms who continuously ignore him and reject him, verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long. I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That is God's word to the Jewish people today. I keep pleading. And I am patient, and I am patient in my grief. But there is this agonizing longing as I stretch out my hands for you to be saved, and yet you still reject me. This is the picture of God. This is the heart of God. And now you see where Paul got his heart at the beginning of this chapter. He gets it from the heart of God himself. God is patiently waiting. And even right now in this very room, he is reaching out his arms, patiently waiting for you to come. How near is the word to you? It is near as the words that you speak. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And any Jew and any Gentile who says that in that moment is translated from death to life and one day will be translated from earth to heaven. Let's pray. And our Holy Father, how grateful we are for this section of your word, a chapter sandwiched between 
two pretty imposing chapters that, that speak of your plan for the Jewish people, but in the heart of it, you hold out the way of salvation to both Jew and Gentile alike. And Father, while there are indeed many, many things you're doing in the world today, this is supreme. This is what matters most. You're sending people out to preach the gospel. And those beautiful feet, wherever they walk, whether it is across the street, whether it's throughout the community and city of Albany and the Capital District, whether it's across the Atlantic, or all the way to the other side of the world, how beautiful are the feet of those who talk about what Jesus has done. And because he has done everything, he came down. And he went to the cross and he died for our sins on that cross so that he took the penalty and the judgment that was intended for us. And then he died, he went down into the abyss and then he came up and he rose again, victorious over all conquering death itself so that he has done everything. And all that is expected and asked of us is to confess that Jesus is Lord which is the most powerful statement anyone could ever make. That Jesus Christ is the master of my life. And I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead. Friends, when you do that, even as I'm praying for you now, you'll be saved. It's that simple. It's that powerful because God did it all. And even now as he extends his outstretched arm, do not be like those who persistently reject, but believe with all of your heart and you will be saved. Thank you, Father, for the righteousness that is found in Christ. Not a bit of it, Father, worked up by us because ours is dirty and soiled. But yours, the righteousness of Christ, is pure and pristine. And you give it to us as a gift. Thank you. And we ask all of this, we say all of this to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ in whose name we ask. And all God's people said, amen. And let me invite you to stand. And even as you're standing, um, and we'll begin to worship in just a moment as we close out our service, if you would like to come forward and, and kneel at the steps, if you would like to meet someone down front and, and share something on your heart, a prayer, maybe, maybe if God has spoken to you and said, I, I want to know what it means for me to trust like that, to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved. Come and have that conversation with someone here at the front, men and women alike. Come and uh, let's worship the Lord together. Let's sing this bridge together.